I too was depressed that it went from sunny to rainy pretty quick, but we're indoors and we're dry and we're, we're good to go. Um, if you would, open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5 or tune your Bible app to that. Uh, we're going to continue our look at the Sermon on the Mount. We've spent some time in the Beatitudes, which are uh, the, the picture of what it looks like to, to see your need and then to see and hunger and thirst for the righteousness that will meet that need and then to have the Lord satisfy it. Last week we talked about being a city on a hill and salt and light. This week, uh, Jesus starts us right off with a couple of declarative statements. But before we get into that, I want to talk about a book that is uh, one of my favorites. Um, as you can tell, I'm, I'm, I'm super nerd. Um, this is quite a big book. This is The Lord of the Rings. How many of you have read this book? Let me see hands. Okay. So, Lord of the Rings, um, a phenomenal book written last century, written in the, the 1900s by J.R.R. Tolkien. It's a fantasy novel, um, and for some reason, fantasy writers can never write short books. And so, we get a long book like this. When the movies started coming out, um, there had been movies all the way through cartoons and things like that, but there were these big Hollywood blockbuster movies, and they were a big deal. And I remember watching a preview for the first movie called The Fellowship of the Ring, and I remember going, oh, that is so cool. See, I'd resisted reading it because I, I kind of thought maybe, you know, maybe it was good, maybe it wasn't, maybe it was just one of those classics that everybody said was good but wasn't. But then I saw the movie and I went, oh man, I want to read this. So being the book nerd that I am, I wanted to read the book first, which sometimes makes the movies better, sometimes makes them worse. Either way, I was going to read it. And I started plugging along. The first book is about this much of the three that are collected in this book. And I was plugging along and it was a slog. I mean, it was hard. Uh, they're talking about these little people called hobbits living in this place called the Shire, and they're talking about their eating habits, and there's these really long songs and poetry and the history of hobbits, and I was like, I don't care. What's the point? Like, I, I just, in my mind, I'm going, I don't get it. So I need to confess. I skipped to the end. As a matter of fact, I didn't even finish the first book. I thought, well, at least I'll get to watch the movie. I'll know what's going on. So I watched the movie, and I was like, none of this was in the part I was reading. This is a pretty cool story. So I started the second book. I know. Uh, total heresy, right? Don't throw things at me. So I started reading the second book, and I was like, this is amazing. And then I read the third book, and I read each of them before the movies, and it didn't spoil anything, but it was great. I really enjoyed it. And I thought, huh, I should have figured this out a long time ago. You know, watch the first movie of a series, then read the books before the next few. It makes perfect sense. That was until about a year ago when I sat down with my son because he wanted to read these. And I told him, if we read them, we can watch the movies afterwards, right? So we started reading it and I told him, I said, just so you know, the first book is really boring. It's really slow and it's really annoying. And I kept going through it. And the amazing thing was that now that I knew where the story ended at the end of the book, now the first book, I actually cared. I cared about these hobbits with their hairy feet, walking around barefoot, drinking beer and having seven meals a day. And I care about this guy named Frodo. And I, I start going, this is making a lot of sense to me. And I started seeing things 
that I had missed in the second and third book because I hadn't read the book before. And it came alive to me in a way that only a master like J.R.R. Tolkien, the author, could do. And I, I look at that and I go, wow, I missed out. But now that I've known the end of the story and how it finishes, when I go back to the beginning, it becomes alive even more. And I appreciate Frodo, and I appreciate the hobbits, and I appreciate the fellowship, and I appreciate all these characters so much more because I learned so much more about them. See, what happens with us is we've got our nice big Bibles, and two-thirds of it are all that first chapter, that Old Testament, that section that we go, it's kind of there, it rounds out the Bible, makes it seem heftier, but I really don't spend a lot of time in that Old Testament. Sometimes we pick and choose, you know, we've got favorite verses here and there, there's a couple Psalms we like, there's a couple others we're kind of done with, there's a whole book of the Bible, Leviticus, we don't touch that. Right? And then there's Daniel and the lions, then we'll throw that one in there, and then David and Goliath, because you know we can act it out in kids' church, right? But then the rest of it we kind of just go, don't really get it. I kind of push it off. As a matter of fact, this has been a temptation in the church from the very start. One of the earliest heretics, one of the earliest condemned people was a guy by the name of Marcion. And Marcion didn't like Jews. He didn't like the Jewish religion. He didn't like the Jewish people. And so he said, I'm going to cut everything out of the Bible that's Jewish. So guess what he cut? The whole Old Testament and most of the New Testament. Got a few here from Luke and a couple things from Paul, leaving out that he's Jewish, and went forward with that. A few years ago, a a prominent Christian just said, we need to unhook from the Old Testament. All of our problems with people not coming to our churches and not liking what we stand for is because we're still latched onto that Old Testament. And honestly, you know, we kind of do this, right? The Old Testament's kind of like, oh yeah, that, that's right, that's out there. See, Jesus has a totally different view of the Old Testament. And many times we have correct views of the Old Testament, but they're not as correct as they need to be. So today what we're going to do is we're going to flesh out Jesus' view of the Old Testament why that matters to us today, and how it provides a a means by which we can have that righteousness, that satisfaction that he promised us earlier when we had the hunger and thirst for righteousness, and you will be satisfied. So our big picture is that, and, and, and this big picture, I know many of you try to write it down hurriedly. You can take your phone out, snap it. This is just a summary of the entire passage. I didn't even change really any of the words, okay? So here's what it is. Christ fulfills the Old Testament thus providing his kingdom citizens, believers, with complete righteousness that exceeds the Pharisees and the scribes and Pharisees. Go ahead and go back to that one, Kyle. People are still looking at it. So this is Christ comes and he fulfills the scriptures. He fulfills the Old Testament, providing us, providing you and me, if we're in Christ, with not just some righteousness, not just a little righteousness, not the righteousness of the Pharisees and the scribes, but a complete righteousness that outdoes the scribes and Pharisees. And we're going to talk about how he does that, and we're going to look at what he does with that. So there's really three sections in this passage. I know it's only, it's only four verses long, but there are three sections here. The first is that Christ fulfills the law and the prophets. The second is Christ perpetuates the law. And the third is that Christ prescribes the law. 
And so we're going to see as we look at this that Christ has a plan, has a purpose in mind in what he's doing. So let me read them to you. They're not going to be on the screen, so just listen and absorb what it is. And we'll leave the, the, the one, two, three up there. Jesus speaks, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That is the word of the Lord. So Jesus starts off this entire paragraph, this entire section, with an explanation. See, Jesus is not preaching off the cuff. He's He's not teaching extemporaneously. He's got a plan in mind. He knows where he's going. When we get into next week and he talks about anger and and, uh, calling a person a fool, he knew he was going there. And so he wants to prepare his disciples, the audience, with this is what's coming. Let me explain to you. I am not here to throw out the law. I'm not here to give a new law. I'm not here to lessen the law. Instead, I am here to fulfill it. And some people would go, well, what does that mean? Well, that, that's good because that's the question we're going to look at. See, the, the mistake that Israel had made at this point was they had elevated law in the place of God. It became the thing that was worshipped by many of the Israelites, not the least of which the scribes and the Pharisees. And so Jesus is saying, no, let's get the focus back where it needs to be. It needs to be on me. I am the one that the law is pointing to. I am the one who is the law. So look to me. So as we get into this, I want to encourage you with a quote from D.A. Carson, a very, very prominent New Testament scholar. And this is what he says. He says, this is one of the most difficult passages in all of Scripture. So understand that this is, a, this is an area that there's a lot of controversy about, about how does Jesus fulfill the law? Does it mean metaphorically? Does it mean literally, theologically, historically, any other we can think of out there? What is it? How is it that Jesus fulfills it? And I think the answer is right in this passage. And, and, and D.A. Carson and I agree. I, I agree with him because he's a lot smarter. But this is a difficult passage, but I think it, it's easy enough if we read it rightly. So the first thing we see is that Christ fulfills the law and the prophets. We see this in verse 17. He says, Do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish, but I've come to fulfill. So we've got to break down some words here. The first thing we see is the word law. The word law. The, the word law means the first five books of the Old Testament, also referred to as the Torah. The prophets are the rest of the, New, the Old Testament. The way the the Israelites viewed it was anything that was written in what we would call the Old Testament was written by a prophet. So the law was written by prophets, and the prophets were written by prophets. So this is not like a division where he left out the Psalms or he left out Proverbs. No, the entirety of the Old Testament is what he's talking about. See, in, in the mind of Christ, the Old Testament teaches us three things. One, it teaches us God's character. It teaches us man's true character. 
And it teaches us the character of salvation. And so we're going to see this come out as we go through this, these, this passage, is that it's about character. It's about understanding the character and the nature of not only God, but Christ, and then through Christ, our nature and what we need to be like. See, the gospel, and I, I, mean, I have books on my shelf that say the gospel and law, or gospel versus law. They're not against each other. The, the Old Testament is not something that needs to be fixed by the New Testament. Instead, the New Testament is the completion. It's the fulfillment of what came before. And we see this. Jesus says, do not think. That means do not presume. Do not misunderstand. He's saying, where I'm going with what I'm teaching, it's really important that you all get the law is still here. The Old Testament is still here. I'm not coming along and you can just rip that part out and throw it away. I'm coming to explain that. That points forward to me. The first paragraph is what's called in Greek, it's called a prokatalipsis, which means an anticipation of objections. So what Jesus is saying is he's going, now I've been speaking and I've been saying stuff and you've been following me. And it'd be really easy to think, one, I'm pushing the law aside. doesn't matter anymore. I'm a new law. Get rid of the old law. The other thing is that he's not coming along and saying, I'm saying the same thing. I'm doing the same old thing. I'm just going to read these and so on. Remember, later on it says Jesus spoke and they said he is one with authority. He speaks as one with authority. And that's because he is the author of the Old Testament. He is the inspirer of the Old Testament. The Old Testament's about him. So Christ says, I come to fulfill it. And I'm going to fulfill it in two ways. I'm going to make it deeper, and I'm going to interpret it deeper, and I'm going to make my obedience to it deeper. And we'll see that in the next few weeks as we look through how he applies these verses, how he applies this understanding of Scripture. He says, I have not come to abolish. Ironically, that word means to unyoke or unhitch, which is exactly opposite of what some people think, that we should unhitch from the Old Testament. He says to fulfill. This word means complete or to establish, accomplish its purpose. This word fulfill, we've seen a few times already. Six times in Matthew has has Matthew used the word fulfill. He'll use it well over 30 times in this gospel. So this is a, a key understanding. This fulfill means to carry out. It means to bring to completion. It means to obey fully. Literally carrying out everything that has been stated. So this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I am here to carry out all that has been stated in the Old Testament, in the law and the prophets. Now see, right here we have to stop because this is where our misconception, our misunderstanding of the Old Testament comes in. Sometimes we think of the Old Testament as it taught to a point and then Jesus continued it and it's kind of you know, antiquated and we can kind of push it back over there. But that's not how Jesus approaches the law. Instead, Jesus approaches the law and says, it's about me. See, the rulers had made a mass confusing list of rules and laws. They had all sorts of caveats and they had all, I mean, it's like our tax law here in America. It doesn't make a lot of sense and it seems like some people are able to find ways out of it and other people aren't. And so Jesus is saying, let's get back to the original purpose of the law. Let's get back to the original purpose of Scripture. Because the the original purpose of the Scripture, the Old Testament, was Christ. He is the focus throughout. 
So when we see these, these rules and these laws in the Old Testament, we, we can't just throw them all out and say, well, they don't apply anymore because we're New Testament Christians. And we also can't say, well, they all still apply now because it, it's God's law and it stays there forever. There is something that has changed, and that something is Christ. And Christ has come and said, here's how you interpret this law. See, the Old Testament is still in effect. In 2 Timothy 3.16, Paul utters the famous phrase. You're all familiar with it. All of Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. What is Paul talking about there? He's not talking about the New Testament because it hadn't been collected yet. He's talking about the Old Testament. So Paul is saying, as I am writing a New Testament, as I am a part of the crew that's going to write the New Testament, the Old Testament still is important. It still matters. It still is life-giving. And so we need to understand that. Now, we as New Testament Christians, we, we struggle. Like I said a minute ago, we think the Old Testament is incomplete, and then we add Jesus to it, and it completes it, which is true. That's not, I'm, not, I'm not putting that down in any way. It's one of the many ways that we get part of it, but we don't get it fully. Another way we get the Old Testament, and again, this is not wrong, it's in the New Old Testament, is that the Old Testament's only there for prophecies for Jesus. When we get closer to Christmas, we'll read some of those prophecies and we'll, we'll hear about the, the virgin in a manger and we'll hear about Christ coming and being born in Bethlehem and we'll hear all these prophecies. And those are amazing and that's in the Old Testament and it's true. But that's not the point of the Old Testament alone. The second thing we see is that we see that the um, sacrifices in the Old Testament all those sacrifices, from the daily sacrifices to the once a year to the scapegoat, all of that points to Christ. And so we can approach the Old Testament and we can go, oh, all of those sacrifices were important because they point to Jesus. But you see, if all we use the Old Testament for are some prophecies for Jesus and some sacrifices that kind of point to them, then really we don't need to access the, whole, the, the Old Testament anymore. We can kind of just set it aside except for occasionally maybe point to something. Same thing goes for the laws and the rules and the commandments. There's whole books on it. Deuteronomy means second law. That means there was a first one. So there are laws and there are commandments. Leviticus is one of those books. And we approach that book and we go, oh, there's a whole bunch of commandments there. Yeah, they maybe probably don't apply. Eh, they're interesting. So we're just going to move on to New Testament. Love, Right? Or we look at the Old Testament and we say, it's history. It's just the story of God's people and it's how all of the people did their thing and it's just a history book. Unless you're a history nerd like me, that doesn't excite you. And you go, oh, yeah, it's history. I didn't like that class, so I'm not going to read that. See, all of these ways we approach the Old Testament, they are true. It is history. It is law. It is the sacrificial system. It is prophecy. But it's not the complete understanding. It's not the understanding that Christ has as he approaches Scripture. Now, for me, my biggest temptation in approaching the Old Testament has been theological. And I've said this myself many times. I say the purpose of the law is to set a really high standard that we miss, and then therefore we need Jesus. So why do we need to read the Old Testament then? If we know it's a law, if we know it's a standard we can't hit, then I don't need to read it. 
How is it, like, like Paul said, that it's useful for training and teaching? How is it the breath of God right now if it's just a bunch of standards that we can't meet, that Jesus met, so let's spend all our time in the New Testament? And you see, that's true. The law was unreachable. Jesus reached it. Those are true. These are all true statements. However, they're not the complete picture. See, this, this paragraph is, is, is Jesus alluding to countless ways that we can interpret Scripture and interpret it wrongly. Not wrongly, I'm sorry. Not fully enough. Interpreting the Old Testament, not fully enough. And he's going to point us to how to interpret it rightly. So I'll give you an example of this. December 25th, Washington crosses the Delaware. It's a very famous, there's a very famous painting, which if you get up to it and you look at it, is physically impossible. They couldn't have that many people in the boat with horses and cannons and so on. They would have drowned, and we would have had no George Washington. But in reality, George Washington crosses the Delaware. So why did he cross the Delaware? Well, let me give you a correct answer that isn't a full answer to get to the other side. It's a correct answer. You go across the river, you're not hoping that you end up on the same side. You want to go to the other. So to get to the other side, it's a correct answer. It's true. Another answer would be, hey, you know, his soldiers were bored. They were going to get into trouble. You know, it was a holiday, and so he wanted something for them to do that was constructive. Is that true? Absolutely it's true. George Washington himself said, my soldiers are getting into trouble. But is that the whole story? Is that the most complete story? Is that where we say, this is the primary purpose, to get to the other side, to keep my soldiers out of trouble? No, the primary purpose was a part of a greater strategy that if they sneak attacked in New Jersey at Princeton, if they would get there and capture that army, it would make it so that the other armies would have to retreat and they would gain territory and it would be a much-needed victory that Washington and the colonials had to have because they were all about to quit. That's the fuller picture. And see, when we approach the Old Testament, and we take it in one of those ways I said, those are absolutely true. Every single one of them is true. There's prophecies. There's the sacrifices that point to Jesus. There's the history of the Israelites who mess up just as much as we do. There are the standards that we can't hit that Jesus hit. Those are all true. But the ultimate truth here is that Jesus came on the cross and died satisfying all of the requirements of the law all the way through. And every single story, every single verse, every single word in the Old Testament is pointing to that grand truth. See, here's the thing. With Jesus, we got three years recorded. Three years the Gospels record three years of his life. Yeah, there's a couple of kids' stories and things like that, but really, it's three years of his life. And then the rest of the New Testament is pointing backwards to that and saying, this is what Jesus did and why it matters. All of those books before that, from Genesis all the way through to Malachi, are, pro are promoting and talking about what Jesus is going to be like. It's pointing forward to this is what our Savior looks like. This is how he's going to come. This is who he is. And so when we view our Bibles, there are 66 books in the Bible. 27 are in the New Testament. We know those well. Maybe we skip Revelation to our own detriment, but we could read Revelation as well. The other 39 are the same idea. 
They're the same focal point. It's about Christ. He says, I am the fulfillment of this. He came to die. He came to cancel the claims of the law. And he is our savior. See, we get the privilege of knowing the end of the story. And now when we look backwards through the lens of Christ, now it pops. Now we go through and we go, oh, when Isaac was being sacrificed, that's a picture of Christ. When they put the blood over the doors in Egypt, that's a picture of Christ. And those are just the easy ones. And the harder ones are even more colorful. I want to read you guys a quote from Tim Keller. It's from a sermon from 2007. I, I'll send out the link to the whole thing if you want to hear it. But this is what he said. i got to read the whole, this whole quote because it's just too good. He said, Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is given to us. Jesus is the true and better Abel, who though innocently slain, his blood cries out not for condemnation, but for acquittal. Jesus is the true and better Abraham, who answered the call of God to leave the comfortable and the familiar and go into the void, not knowing whether he will create a new people of God. Jesus is the true and better Isaac, who has not just been offered up by his father on a mountain, but was truly sacrificed for us. And when God said to Abraham, now I know you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son whom you love for me. Now we can look at God taking his son on the mountain and say, now I know God loves me because you did not withhold your son, your only son whom you love. Jesus is a true and better Jacob who wrestled and took the blow of justice that we deserved. So we, like Jacob, only receive wounds of grace. Jesus is the true and better Joseph, who at the right hand of the king forgives those who betrayed him and sold him and uses his power to save them. Jesus is the true and better Moses, who stands in the gap between his people and the Lord and mediates a new covenant. Jesus is the true and better rock of Moses, who God struck with his justice and now gives us water in a desert. Jesus is the true and better Job, the truly innocent sufferer who then intercedes for and saves his stupid friends. <laughs> Jesus is the true and better David, whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it. Jesus is the true and better Esther, who didn't just risk leaving an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate and heavenly one, who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life for his people. Jesus is the true and better Jonah who was cast into the storm so that we could be brought in. Jesus is the real rock of Moses, the real Passover lamb, innocent, perfect, helpless, slain so the angel of death will pass us. He's the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true light, the true lamb, the true bread. The Bible is not about us. The Bible is about him. And once you start to see that, that Old Testament becomes new again. It becomes the testament of Jesus Christ about who he is. So we must, we must get that what Jesus is going to do in the next few weeks as we continue in these, these, this Sermon on the Mount, he's going to step in to the place where Moses had been, where Moses says, the Lord said to do this. Jesus steps in and goes, I say to do this. 
He has stepped into the place that God had because he is God. He is fulfilling all of that Old Testament. The entire thing points to him. And he is saying, thus saith the Lord, I am the Lord. He's saying, I am the one who transcends everything. You know, and either he's right or he's wrong. He's either God or he's a nut. The Old Testament makes it clear that he is God. So the first thing we see when it comes to this is that Jesus says, I fulfill all of the Old Testament. Allow that to inform how you read it. And yes, there are places where it is really hard to see. But praise be to God, the Holy Spirit who wrote that is inside of you and will help you see that. But Jesus continues. The next thing he does is he perpetuates the law. This means he continues the law. He says it's still in effect. Verse 18, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota or not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. For truly I say to you, that word truly is the, is the word amen in Greek. Jesus uses it 31 times in the book of Matthew. And it's kind of like all caps, heads up, this is really important. It's his way of saying, I'm about to say something really, really important and you better listen. He always uses this at crucial points. So he says, this is important. Grab this. It's incredibly important. None of this will pass away. None of it will disappear. Not one iota or dot. Now we read that and we don't necessarily get that. But basically these are the two smallest like strokes of the pen in the Hebrew alphabet and the Greek alphabet. Some translations will say not a jot or a tittle. That's the official name of the Hebrew. The iota and the dot are in Greek. Basically what he's saying is not a single part of this is going away. Notice here, he doesn't say the law and the prophets. He's changed it to just law at this point. This means his commandments. This means the things that he says you must do. And that'll, that'll tie into where this all finishes here in a minute. He says, this will not pass away. It will not disappear. It'll be around forever until all is accomplished. Now, all is accomplished. Some people will say, well, that's his death. No, his death was the start. His death was the breaking in. His death was the D-Day. All is accomplished is the V-E day. It's the victory day when he returns and takes us to be with him. All these Old Testament texts must be viewed through the lens of Jesus how he fulfills them, how he makes them what they're about, and then how he confirms them. He's going to show us how to do this, starting next week in verse 21. Verse 19, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. That word therefore means because of the previous verses. So 17 and 18, this is Jesus' concluding statement. He's saying, because of what I've said, whoever relaxes, that means loosens, it means breaks or nullifies. Whoever does that, it's actually an interesting wordplay. The word uh, relax and the word abolish are the same words in Greek, but with one word added, one letter added to the front of abolish, like the word atheism, right? It means no God, a theism. So we would be theists because we believe there's a God. It's that same thing. So Jesus is making a little word play here. He's saying it's not, I'm going to, those who abolish it, but these who unabolish it or who, who loosen it, who make it like it's not supposed to be. And notice he says the, that whoever, whoever, whoever relaxes these will be called least in the kingdom. 
And the, the commandments, that, that word means the Ten Commandments. It literally means ten words. So Jesus has taught us about the authority of Scripture. Now he's teaching us about how we teach others about Scripture. But notice what he says here. And it, it, it kind of struck me when I first read this. He doesn't say, those of you that teach this and change this, you're going to hell. doesn't say that. What does it say? It just says you're going to be the least in heaven. And those of you who teach it all are going to be the greatest. And so for me, I'm going, wait a second. So you're telling me that people that come along to the law after Jesus came and they teach it, they, they make it easier for some, they're still getting to heaven, but they're at the lowest level? And the answer is, is that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is saying, you are still teaching my law, and even if you tweak it and change it and loosen it, it's not the best. But I want for you is I want you to be the greatest. I want you to understand that you can be the greatest in heaven if you honor my law, if you teach others my law. Greatness in Christ's kingdom is living to do and to teach Scripture. I love this quote from one of the commentators. He said, make your life goal to be a personal translation of Scripture. You will be given the reward of great when you come into the kingdom of heaven. Remember, Christ doesn't say that there's going to be multiple layers of reward in heaven. This could be right here and right now. You could be great in the kingdom of heaven as it is here on earth. Or it may be in the afterlife, but it is reward. And it is saying, when you teach this, no matter the pressure from the world, no matter the pressure from the church, when you teach the whole scriptures, you will be great in the only eyes that matter. And that's the eyes of your Lord. Spurgeon had a prayer about this verse, and he said, Lord, make me of this thy kingdom a right loyal subject. May I both do and teach according to thy word. Whether I am little or great on earth, make me great in obedience to you. See, we we want to follow our own impulses, but our impulses are many times wrong. We want to follow his desires. We want to desire the way he does. So we see this, this movement from verse 17. Jesus says, here's how I relate to Scripture. I fulfill them. Then he moves into verse 18, and he says, Scripture's not going anywhere. The law's not going anywhere. It's here to stay. Then verse 19, he says, and this is what we do with it. We teach others, and we don't loosen it. We don't take out the parts that we don't like. We teach all of it. And then in verse 20, we get a warning. Because you should ask yourself, why, if, if Jesus came to fulfill the law, and the law points to him, and the entirety of it is that he came to die to meet the requirements of the law so that we could be grafted in, we could become part of God's family, then why is the law still around? Why does it still apply? Because Jesus does prescribe the law here. I heard an heard a analogy from Sinclair Ferguson that really helped me get my mind wrapped around this. He said, the Christian life is like one of those mighty steam engines. You know, the ones you had to shovel coal into and superheat the steam in order to make the locomotive go. They needed fuel for their fire. That coal was there. It had to be there. But a train doesn't work if it doesn't have tracks. Train sitting there spinning its wheels, that's a pretty pathetic thing to see. But a train on the tracks is able to go somewhere. Love for Christ and the power of the Spirit is the energy that makes the locomotive go. 
But the love needs tracks to ride on. So God's law is the tracks that tell us which direction to go to. Is it any wonder that in the New Testament, the most commonly cited part of the Torah is Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments? Because the idea here is that these commandments are not restrictions. They're freedom to know which way to go to honor God, to be like God, to move in a Godward direction. See, without the law, we're a locomotive that's spinning our wheels trying to figure out where to go. With the law, with the the guidelines that God has given us, he has pointed us in a direction, and that direction is to be more like him and be more like his son as we move forward. And we see this in verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So we've gone from theoretical to practical, and now we're moving on to eternal. If Scripture does not make us righteous beyond the righteousness of the Pharisees, notice he says they're righteous. And if you remember anything of the Bible, you know the Pharisees were the ones Jesus was the hardest on. It's because their righteousness, which they have, they have righteousness, is only external. It never comes inside. And so what he's saying is you need to have a righteousness that exceeds them. And he's going to be very clear on this. The righteousness to exceed them is not an external righteousness. You don't need to double down and do twice the memorization of the Pharisees and do twice the rule following. Instead, he's saying, you're going to follow the rules, but you're going to do it from a redeemed heart that then leads out into the rules, not the other way around. This exceeds means overflow. See, the scribes were the interpreters of the law. They were the ones that kept the law and made sure it was translated correctly, and they would supply the interpretation. And then the Pharisees were the enforcement squad. They were the ones that applied it. The Pharisees had 248 commandments and 365 prohibitions, and they tried to keep them all for the sole reason of being better than everybody else. You see, their their hearts were in the wrong place, but their actions in principle, we're in the right place. We need to understand that only by God's mercy can our inside match our outside. The Pharisees just were worried about the outside. Notice, too, it says they will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Notice it's not, oh, they'll be low down on the kingdom of heaven. They won't be great. It says, no, you never enter it. It's saying, you will not get in. I think that's a big change. We need to understand that. See, kingdom righteousness, the righteousness that Jesus started talking about in that first beatitude is all internal. It starts with me going, I am poor in spirit. I can't do this. I am mourning over my sin. I'm mourning over your sin. And it leads me to go, I am meek, Lord, I need help. I am hungry and thirsting for righteousness. And then he steps in and supplies the satisfaction. See, the Pharisees were all about the outward. They didn't care about what they were like on the inside. They didn't care about their thought life. They didn't care about pride. Instead, what they cared about is how they looked on the outside. The external righteousness that's that's from their pride and their arrogance and their snobbery. Jesus said, the right heart is what matters. The satisfied heart is what matters. That then leads to the right living. The quote from uh, an author named Hughes, he says, Christ's intransigent, his hard, unbending words were actually full of grace. In verse 20, he was speaking as kindly as he ever spoke, for he was explaining in the most dramatic way possible that salvation is impossible apart from grace. And this takes us right back to the Beatitudes. 
See, that should be encouraging to us. That we don't have to measure up with a set of rules. We don't have to clean up our outside before Christ will take us. Because he starts from the inside out. And yes, on this, on this earth, you may never get your outside as spotless as it needs to be. If God tarries and we all get another 40 years, some of you went, oh no, not 40 more years. But if we get another 40 years, we better look more like Christ. We still will not be there. But what matters is, where are we internally? What is the Lord doing inside of us? And is he working on us internally? So if you're here today and you've got sin that is still lingering, it's still latched onto you, understand that Christ wants to work inside of you to then kill the sin on the outside. Don't treat the symptoms, treat the disease. And the disease is internal. So there's hope here. We will never measure up because of our righteousness, but praise be to God, his righteousness is what measures us up. See, if we were to look at it, the Pharisees have one type of righteousness. It's external. Jesus says you need to have internal and external. We're going to have double the righteousness of the Pharisees, but only if he lets it work from inside of us. You know, some people read this passage in verse 20, and they think, oh, i got to be better. i got to do church better than the Pharisees did. I need to know my Hebrew and my Greek, and I need to have passages memorized. I need to know more than the pastor. Please know more than me. (laughs) But understand, this passage is not about knowing more than your pastor, knowing more about God's word. It's about knowing the author. It's about having a relationship with the author. It's not about keeping the rules. It's about knowing the one who made them. This entire book is about that one. From Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. All 66 books are about the one who purchased you on the cross and wants to remake you inside to out, whether you've got a minute left on earth or you've got another 40. He wants to remake you, not because you are so great, but because he is, and he's going to make you great. He wants to satisfy us. He wants to remake us. He wants to provide for us. His word testifies to that. So today, will you follow the one who loved you that much? Choose this day who you will serve. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your son came in our place, Lord. We thank you for that amazing picture that we get at the end of each of these gospels and that was was prophesied to come, that was pictured in the sacrifices Lord, that was, was, was seen in several different stories, multiple stories and pictures of sacrifice. That was seen in the law and the, the requirements that we couldn't meet. All of those did point to your son, but even more so, the entirety of the Old Testament, all of it points to how great he is. He is better than we could have ever imagined. And his death was more meaningful on levels that we can't even scratch the surface of. And so, Lord, I pray that that would land heavy on us, that we would feel that, that we would, we would recognize that that is who you are. And you did that out of love. You did that out of wanting to glorify your name. And you want to continue to do that in us today. So, Lord, do a work on our hearts. Where are the places, Lord, where we don't allow you? Where are the places where we still harbor different sins, different things that are, that are in the way? Lord, clean house. And then, Lord, help us to look like your son. 
from the inside out. Let us be a church that is known for that. In your name, amen.